31 of Role, Play, Grow, the podcast for tabletop entrepreneurs, creators, and fans. I am Courtney Stover of Lighthearted Adventures, and in this podcast, we talk to the creators behind the brands and the tabletop roleplay gaming space about who they are and how they are turning their passion for gaming into a career. Our guest today is a very talented indie TTRPG designer with over 40 titles on itch.io, Jamila R. Najati. He also has a Kickstarter for the second edition of Our Haunt that just launched a few days ago through a partnership they have with Possum Creek Games. Our conversation covered everything from all the lessons they've learned and how they've refined processes over the last few years to digging into how he's updating Our Haunt to a new version for this Kickstarter. Jamie is incredibly talented and has a lot of wisdom to offer about game design. We'll have a few more interviews in the coming months with folks who've been working with Possum Create Games, and I know that you'll enjoy all of them. If you aren't familiar with this company, you might recognize game titles such as Wanderhome or Sleepaway. I interviewed Jay Dragon and Ruby Lavin about founding Possum Creek back in episode 13. So if you're interested in learning more about the type of projects that they do, I would recommend checking out that episode after you listen to this one. For this week's update, I'm stoked to say that Britain just released the first map pack for Wild Beyond the Witchlight. If you are a D&D fan and plan on running that campaign, I would definitely recommend you go check it out. He is creating hand-drawn map packs for all five chapters of Wild Beyond the Witchlight and releasing the packs as he completes each chapter. The original version for all of them will be in black and white, but the plan is that once he finishes the fifth map pack, he's going to go back and do the same maps in a color version as well. We'll update the same DM skill listings at that time, but the prices will increase once both versions are included in the packs. So if you're listening to this around the time that the episode drops, I definitely recommend you go ahead and snag the map pack now while it's at a lower price, and then you'll get the color version for free once they're ready. Follow us on Twitter at LightheartADV to keep up with all our map pack releases, and you can find all of our map packs by either going to dmsguild.com and searching for Lightheart Adventures as the author, or you can go to lightheartadventures.com slash shop to find all our DMs Guild and drive through RPG publications in one spot. Some other ways you could support me and this show are via our Patreon page, which has a few different tracks depending on whether you'd like maps and adventures or tailored content for this podcast, including contributing questions for upcoming guests, a spotlight on our website, and even a shout out on this podcast. You can also check out our affiliates like Friday Afternoon Tea. Friday recently released her fall teas, and I think my favorite of the seasonal teas is the pumpkin chai, but honestly, I really did enjoy all the teas that came in that sample pack. If you also want these delicious teas or want to try others of her very large assortment of nerdy teas, go to FridayTea.com and enter in code LIGHTHEARTADV to receive 10% off your order and help support this show. All right, let's go chat with Jammy. Today, I am very excited to introduce you all to TTRPG designer Jamila R. Najati. Like, hello, Jami. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing really, really great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. You have so many games out, and I cannot yeah. wait to dive into them. <laughs> uh, one might say I, I almost have too many games. Uh, I've got a real good, though. I haven't made too many uh, recently. We're, we're around the number 40 on Itch.io, so it's a nice... <laughs> Humble number. <laughs> no, I'm totally joking. I know it's way too much. <laughs> hey, 
is not too much if you are enjoying what you're doing. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I really, uh, I really, really do love making games. So that may be why uh, I have too many uh, or a lot. Let's just go with a lot instead of too many. <laughs> well, please, how did you get into gaming? Yeah. So my start in TTRPGs was relatively late compared to the people that I game with here. So I got into my first foray was in this ill-fated one-shot of D&D. Uh, it, was, it was not the greatest time. I had, in fact, the worst time. But so that was like a bit of a false start, right? And then my real start in gaming, like so in D&D, I was like about, I want to say 16 years old, but maybe younger. I think like I was around 14, but when I really got into it, it was through the Star Wars Saga Edition. My roommate was playing with someone. I invited myself to the game. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was like closer to my, yeah, I was in my late 20s when I, when I started playing Star Wars Saga Edition. And I just absolutely fell in love with the collaborative nature and the and like Saga Edition's like a little on the crunchy side, right? It was a precursor to D&D 4th Edition. So a lot of the DNA of uh, Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition is in Saga Edition. So I really enjoyed trying to find that, that partnership between mechanic and narrative. And I think like from then on, like, and that still shows in my, in my design now, I really try to have mechanics that support the story and yeah oh my gosh I'm getting ahead of myself but basically like, that's where it started <laughs> well that's awesome how much do you get to play right now oh I play uh, a lot <laughs> so so I tell myself it's for research I tell uh -huh. myself it's for playtesting my games because I love to playtest my games and I tell myself it's so that I can keep up to date with the newer games and try out itchio games so I play anywhere between three to six times a week. So it's a lot of games <laughs> that I make time for. I tell myself it's my job. <laughs> well, I mean, it absolutely is. And I am jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really lucky in that I get to play on the Gauntlet. So the Gauntlet community is a place where you can just, they're very focused on indie games and story games, OSR. So it's very easy to just go in and say, hey, I'm playtesting my new game. Who wants to sign up? And it just happens automatically. It's a pretty large community of people who are super into indie story games. And a lot of people set up new games all the time. So every time there's a new playtest, every time a new game comes out, you can bet that someone's going to run it on the gauntlet. So I'm super lucky in that I have that community to like, jumping and play. The first time I joined the Gauntlet, I went a little crazy. I think I started with like eight to 10 games a week. And I realized I need to like sleep and eat and do other things at some point. So, so now we're down to just three to six a week. Amazing. That sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So at what point did it turn into you writing your own games? Oh, yeah. So that was, I had my first attempt a few years ago, simply because, and I think this happens for a lot of game designers, right? When we want to play a game, we want to run a game, but it just doesn't exist. And at the time, I was asked to GM at an event, and the theme of the event was Filipino folklore or an, any Filipino game. And I think what most of the GMs were doing was they were hacking a system or they were going to run D&D &D in a pre-colonial setting or something similar. And 
I was just so full of hubris. You know, I just thought, you know, I love Powered by the Apocalypse. How hard can it be to make a PPDA game? Pfft, should be easy. Uh, spoiler, it, it is not easy to make a PPDA <laughs> game. So, so I spent three months dying of my hubris uh, as I put, as I scrapped together uh, my first game. And yeah, and I still worked on that game for quite a bit on and off, uh, mostly on for about a year and a half, I want to say. And then it wasn't, I, I really want to say things took off when I got introduced to Itch.io Game Jams. And I saw that people were making smaller games and that's really what got me into it. So I joined the Sad Mecha Jam. A lot of people have heard about it. If you haven't, please check it out. On Itch.io, there's so many good, sad mecha games <laughs> that came out of the Sad Mecha Game Jam. And yeah, so ever since then, I just got, I got really addicted to Game Jams and Itch.io and the community on Twitter was just so welcoming and excitable. It was just so much fun. So that's really, really how I got into it. That sounds awesome. I keep finding little pockets of the communities within like different spaces. And it's, I keep finding a lot of them on Twitter, but then I keep hearing about all of these other ones. And it's like, where did you find all of these people? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I know Twitter is Twitter, right? But I'm still so grateful because I met so many awesome folks who are now really good friends of mine or who I get to game with or work with. And yeah, it's like, it's really fun finding those little pockets, right? Like those little communities. I think right now things feel a little bit like the Wild Wild West sometimes in, in the game <laughs> design, like you just wander into a frontier. Okay, I'm from the Philippines. So I don't actually know uh, the Wild West tropes that well, but I just assume you just roll into town, right? That's kind of <laughs> what it feels like, you know, just come in with your horse, like, oh, look, it's a new community of gamers. I assume that's what it's like. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so you've now got, like you said, around 40 games um, on itch. So I would love to just hear kind of an overview of the types of games that you like to create and kind of if there's been any kind of journey along the way about like if that's kind of evolved as you've written more and more. Yeah, I started looking back at my earlier games and it's just so it's just really nice to see how much. I've grown as a designer and I, I feel that way about a lot of other itchio designers that I started off with. And it's just really nice to see us updating our older games or, or refining them. So, but basically at first I was really trying to create games that were best for one shot experiences or best for short series. And mostly it was because it was a reflection of my own real game experiences where at the time it was so hard for me to get a group that could stay together long enough because like I'm I'm like in my late 30s right and so it just gets harder and harder for most people to sustain like what we were able to do in our 20s right <laughs> like being able to stay up until 4 a.m every week is a, is a little hard to ask of people so at the time I was like creating games that are best for like one shots or really good for just two to four sessions and when you design and when you create you cannot help but put a part of yourself into it, right? And I really felt that was true for me. I really felt like I didn't realize how affected I was by certain themes. So my early games are really focused on things like memory and connection and emotions. And also there's this very strong theme of decolonization because like I said, I'm from the Philippines. And, and it's funny because if you talk to Jammy back then, I don't think they would have said that they were really affected by the post-colonial aspects of the society that they live in. But when I was looking at my games, I was like, oh yeah, you are 
you were super affected by this. So I really think my earlier games were about dissecting that. And also, I think coming to terms with the fact that I'm non-binary, I think that really showed up in a lot of my early games before I knew I was non-binary and a lot of queer aspects as well. So a lot of those things have survived until now, but I think most strongly what has sustained throughout is my my love for emotional play, my love for bringing in emotions into game and connections. That's really what has been present all throughout, no matter what. Though certain themes have fallen to the side, like I don't delve into memory too much anymore, though it'll still show up in my games, but it won't be the central theme. I also forgot to mention that the main reason that memory comes up a lot is because I have temporal lobe epilepsy and I have some other undiagnosed mental illnesses where my memory is not the strongest thing. And I've had to learn to come to terms with the fact that I just don't have great memory and what that entails and what that means. And it was just a very healthy, cathartic way for me to address the things that I've learned in the process. Yeah, I definitely think that that is a really cool way to be able to just explore all of, like, even if you don't necessarily realize it. And it's cool that you're able to look back to and go, oh, yeah, nope, that's, that was there in those games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and what's really fun is when other people get to see the games and they point it out, right? And, <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, that is, that is, and that still happens to me until now, even though I've gotten much, much better. Well, I don't want to say much better, even though I've gotten much more conscious and reflective of what I design and put into my games, I still get surprised by what other people see that I just completely miss (laughs) in my games. That's cool. What motivated you to start publishing in the first place? Ooh, yeah. So when you say publishing, like putting it out on Itch.io and stuff, like... Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think like it was really the game jams because... It was just so much fun seeing people just putting up their games and enjoying it. And I I really want to stress that I've only been like putting up games at Itch.io for the past two years. I know I'm going to sound like, oh, back in my day. That's not what I mean. But uh, (laughs) uh, but I do get a little worried that nowadays people feel pressure to have really nice layout or to have something really professional looking when... I don't I hope that it's just a wave that comes and goes, right? I hope that it's not going to be that way in 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 a few months to another year. But basically what I really liked is that early on people would just post up whatever, right? They would just put up a text file or or a Google Doc or and I think the encouragement of just creating and just sharing was so so fantastic. Like it was really and also like Itchio welcomed a space of you don't have to have a perfect game and it doesn't have to be a finished game. It can be a game that's still in the middle of finding itself because people want to support that. And I think that's what I really enjoyed seeing is that people are willing to support you emotionally, financially, socially, right? As you, as this game comes to life and as you figure yourself out as a game designer, which is super, super fun. Yeah. I really like that a lot. So I know you have the Sword Queen games. Mm-hmm. Was that there from the beginning of the publishing journey or did that come later? Ooh, that came a little later. And I think that's why like my Twitter handle is temporal hiccup and my, <laughs> my itch.io URL is temporal hiccup. Temporal hiccup is just like a, a handle that I got from a long time ago. It was my partner writing a game review for Max Payne, the video game series. And I just love the sound of temporal hiccup. But I think a few months into it, I realized, huh, I should call this something, right? And I was inspired by 
my friends who had things like their own names for for their own games and yeah and so I did a tower reading because uh, I'm, I'm also a tower reader I was a professional tower reader and psychic for quite a few years before I went into game design so I did a I do I do tower readings like all the time like practically every day and so at the time I was constantly pulling out the queen of swords like over and over and over again and I just my intuition just told me you should call it sword queen games right as you figure out what that means, what, what, what a sword means and what it means to be a queen and have that be embodied in your games. And so, yeah, that's where Sword Queen Games came from. Uh, it, just, it just sounded cool. And I think it just invites that sort of intuitive nature of my games. Uh, I went a little all out. I even got a tattoo of a sword, <laughs> like just to, <laughs> just to like sort of like celebrate that beginning for myself. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> What does Sword Queen mean to you at this point? Ooh, yeah. So at this point, you know, it's so funny because someone asked Jay Dragon, like, what kind of games does Jammy make, right? And, and like, Jay told me, so looking at my Itch.io page, there's just, there's a whole gamut of, like, games. I think I think I do tend to skew towards intense emotional games of high stakes. I think the one exception or the few exceptions I have to like cozy sweet games. But other than that, I tend to go all over the place with genre and all over the place with topics and themes. And I think Jay Dragon like described it so beautifully when Jay was like, yeah, Jamie just takes whatever they want to talk about, whatever he wants to express in games and just does it. <laughs> so I think that's very true. I am continually inspired by the shows I watch or the people I interact with. And like, for example, I've been dying to watch Godzilla versus King Kong. And I cannot because every time I start watching that movie, I start thinking, I see this game. I see what it is. It's like, <laughs> right? I start breaking it apart into, I see what the playbooks are. So the first section is all the humans dealing with the with the kaiju and the next section of the game the second phase is when you are the kaiju fighting right and i was like oh, stop so i've only made it as far as 50 minutes that movie. <laughs> because i think too much about what it would be like to to be a game i'm just yeah so i think currently sword queen's games is in a stage of i think like excitement and joy in creating as many experiences as i can through the ttrpg lens and I think also as a designer, I'm learning how to refine and also give myself permission to work on bigger games. So I'm working on Powered by the Apocalypse games, Forge of the Dark games, and <laughs> everything I'm playtesting right now are games that need at least at least eight to sixteen sessions. And yeah, so so Star Queen Games is just continually like growing as I grow as a person and as a designer. <laughs> That is amazing. I'm going to jump back and say I completely hear you on the movie. And I think that would be an amazing game. <laughs> right, right. Oh, my gosh. I really, I really like I think <laughs> I think one of the struggles and challenges as a game designer is to just stay focused on the games you're working on. <laughs> I'm currently working on seven different games right now. Like, just oh, my to, gosh. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, it's like Tetris, just trying to like work on the, they're, they're at different stages. Um, so I'm like, I love you, Godzilla versus King Kong. I will find a way to fit you in into my baby <laughs> set at some point. Just wait for me. Just wait. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> okay. Well, tell me about our haunt. 
Ooh, yeah. So Arhant is one of my earlier games. And in fact, it was my very first attempt at a belonging outside belonging game, which is a system that was developed through Dream Askew, Dream Apart by Avery Alder and Benjamin Rosenbaum. And it's one of my favorite systems, one of my favorite frameworks for telling stories. And at the time, once again, it a lot of my early games were birthed by game jams. And so that one in particular was a belonging outside belonging game jam, just making any game as long as it used that system. And Avery was very supportive of people who wanted to try making a game within that system, which is super cool. And so since I didn't have a lot of the early game jams that I joined had very like strong thematic limitations, right? Like, so this has to be a game about this, or it has to be a game about that. But that one in particular was just anything you wanted, as long as it was belonging outside belonging. And so of course, my mind went to found family ghosts hanging out inside this old mansion, and who don't remember how they died, who don't have most of their memories intact, and they have to decide if they want to try to retrieve those memories or if they just want to find their own version of happiness in this new place that they find themselves in. So that's where our hot started. And yeah, I'm really excited to say that Jay Dragon and Ruby Lavin of Possum Creek Games is giving me a chance to bring about the second edition of our hot. It sounds, it sounds so weird to say that second edition. It sounds very cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. So I would love to dig into a lot of this. So for starters, how did you get partnered up with Jay and Ruby? Yeah, so it started with, wow, I remember like buying Sleepaway, like backing it through Kickstarter and just being like, wow, this person's so cool. Like Jay Dragon's amazing. And, like, <laughs> and just really admiring Jay from afar. I'm trying to remember, gosh, I don't remember how we started talking because it must have been through Twitter. Like I am so incredibly shy. I don't know how it started. I think it must have been Jay like reaching out to me. I'm not sure. And yeah, and so we just started talking and Jay has really become a true friend to me. I love Jay so much. Jay has when we both struggled especially early on during the pandemic, it was Jay who really helped me when my disabilities really flared up to a point where just Existing on a daily basis was difficult. It was really Jay who helped me through that. And yeah, we became really close and we love talking about game design and we love talking about games and we've wanted to work together for a long time on something. And it was Jay who suggested that I breathe new life into Arhat because Jay just loved Arhat so much and just so, saw so much of it in terms of like the themes of found family and the cozy, creepy, cute, sweet, slightly disturbing aspects in the game. And and yeah, so that's that's how we got started. I think like a common theme is that I'm not good at pitching my games or <laughs> or starting up things with other people. So if anyone, to people who are listening, please don't follow my example. Just go and pitch your games. <laughs> like go put yourself out there. Uh, don't wait for other people to say or do something. But yeah, uh, I'm just very lucky that Jay wanted to give our haunt a chance <laughs> and saw the beauty in it that I was not able to express. <laughs> so I would love to know what the second edition is going to look like and kind of, so I guess not just what it's going to look like, but what 
the journey has been, or like from this conversation with Jay to like how it's going to be different and how you've decided how it's going to be different. Yeah. So, so belonging as I belong, like I said, is one of my favorite systems. And I've tried making several different games within that system because I'm, I'm going to resist the urge to geek out too much, right? Because <laughs> if I get started on geeking out about game design, oh my gosh, I'm going to be here forever. But basically, I feel like we're just at the beginning of what is possible within the space of belonging outside belonging. I am continually inspired by, I think like, for example, Wander Home by Possum Creek Games is such a departure from what people originally saw in Belonging Outside Belonging, right? And so, and other games like Galactic by Riley Rethal also moves in a completely different direction, as does Luke Jordan, does some really interesting stuff within the BOB space. And there are lots of people doing like really amazing things. And so I've also been really like, uh, so I'm the kind of ridiculous designer where I say, hmm, I want to experiment with creating a BOB game that has this mechanic and doesn't have that one. So instead of just changing the current game, I just go make an entirely new one, <laughs> like experimenting with that mechanic. And so I did that like about six times. And that's why I have so many uh, BOB games. I just kept like experimenting over and over again with different mechanics and different things, shifting back and forth because in my experience, sometimes like the narrative premise can do so much to shift around how the mechanics work, right? And so I really wanted to experiment. And one of the things that I really wanted to invite was the persistence of growth in a BOB game. And so I experimented with Brinkwood Refuge, which is a fan game for another game I love, Brinkwood by Eric Brenhart. That is one of my favorite games. And I loved it so much that I created two fan games for it. <laughs> so uh, just to just to extend how much I enjoy playing in that space. And in one of those games I made was a B.O.B. game. And it experimented with the idea of you, you spend any tokens you have towards building your physical space. So, for example, one of the playbooks has access to the library. And then from there, you can like add a workshop or you can add a school. And then that brings in new moves that you can do. Right. And it, it sort of expands a narrative space. And I had so much fun working on that system and shifting things around and changing how things work mechanically. I really wanted to address some challenges that I saw when running and playing BOB in that BOB was so easy for people new to games to pick up. But for people who are veterans, who are used to having a GM, it was so difficult. Like they had such a hard time understanding that everyone was a GM, that everyone could take part. And they kept sort of like disappearing into the background. So I wanted to mechanically incentivize like, no, this is your time. This is your chance to be a guide and to guide the story. And so I learned a lot of lessons all throughout the games, but I felt like I really got the hang of it in Brinkwood Refuge. And then I thought, you know, I'd love to bring this into... Arhant. So in Arhant, instead of just having the playbooks and sort of guidance, general guidance on how to play certain aspects, we call them setting elements. Instead, I thought we can have like each ghost has an idea of like a room that they like to hang out with, right? A room that they like to hang out in that they feel really connected to that, that really like explores certain themes and ideas that they're interested in. So for example, in this new version of Arhant, the playbooks are still the same, 
you get to choose between being the betrayed, the loved, the returned, the cat. There's a cat. Of course, I had to put in a cat, the doll, and a few others. We have six playbooks there. But I also added, you now get to choose which room in the haunt that you inhabit. That's your favorite room to hang out in. So we have the garden, the attic, the study, the secret room, a few others. And it really just created a more cozy space. And from there, I also did the the idea of persistence and growing things. But instead of like expanding the house, because I felt like the house is old and, and the mansion is falling apart, right? So instead it's about you have a choice. Do you want to regain one of your memories from before you died? Or do you want to create a new memory with this newfound family? And so you spend the tokens at the end of each session. And then if you reach the required amount of tokens, you all decide as a group who among you will either regain a memory or create a new one. And the thematic difference is very stark. Like the when you regain a memory, most of them are very sad. So I, I wrote them out as how I remember my own memories, right? Very fragmented and and very open to interpretation. So for example, one of the memories you can regain is beautiful clothes laid out at sunset, a sudden shadow, I won't tell if you won't. Or another one is a car chase, the sound of an ambulance siren, don't leave me like this. So they're all like just very sad memories that really like tell you like maybe the life you had before this one wasn't the best. And then when you want to create a new memory, instead, it creates a new moment that you can share with the with the other ghosts in the haunt. So for example, we have things like an elderly cat asked us to spend time with them before death came. How do we pass the time? Or we have things like, let's see, we met a shadow that had their own voice. They asked for a name as a gift. What name did we give? So it feels more like a storybook. Like it feels more like this is a second chance for the ghosts to experience kinship, almost like a second childhood, I want to say. That's what the new memories feel like. So so yeah, so that's that's basically, and that's very new. All of the stuff was not part of the original design of Arhant. And so it's just, I really just, I feel like I've, I've grown so much as a designer that it's easier for me to see the strongest themes in the game and really like bring them out and bring them to like a polish and a shine. Uh, that makes me just so proud of where Arhant is right now. It sounds absolutely amazing. And yeah, all of those phrases you were saying about the memories that could regain were just punch in the gut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've really, I've really learned over the years how to refine the punch gut. <laughs> so, it's, it's a very, but it's a very loving punch gut, right? So <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> entrepreneurs. I love introducing you to new creators every episode, but I could really use your support. I would love to invite you to join our Patreon page where you'll gain access to behind the scenes content, add your questions to upcoming interviews, and you could even receive a shout out on our site and an upcoming episode. To learn more, go to lightheartadventures.com slash RPG. And now back to the show. I know this process is not linear and is probably going to be like very different depending on the game that you're designing. But just after so many different games and publications, generally, what would you say that your process has become for designing a game and how has that changed over the past couple of years? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So I think early on, (laughs) I'm just remembering that past Jabby who was like, oh, this is so hard. (laughs) um, (laughs) 
This is so difficult. Uh, yeah, but basically I started with, I think what I wish I had known back then and what I wish I could express to people is that you will always have a voice, a, a highly critical voice, right? And it's it's not about defeating that voice or shouting back that voice. I think it's just about making peace with that voice to a point where they're not shouting at you and they're just like quietly going like, hmm, are you sure about this mechanic? <laughs> right? So, uh, but yeah, so basically my process early on was really just doing my best to, yeah, I think it was just like experimenting with mechanics, just writing it out right onto the page. Uh, in fact, I had a tendency to lay out and design at the same time, which I still kind of do, which is, well, it's, it's, it's not always the easiest when you need, when you start working with other people and you need an editor to look at things or, or other things. But, but yeah, basically early on, uh, and I still like to do it until now, if I admit, I like to design straight into the layout because I like to see what it looks like on the page. I like to have a feel for the visuals that I could, that I could manage to get through free spaces, right? Through stock photos that I could get my hands on. Yeah. So basically I would just really write it from start to finish, which was a really bizarre way to design a game. I would just really start from the introduction and just design all the way through. And afterwards I would play test the game and make changes, update it, and just keep growing the game slowly bit by bit. And I think nowadays how it's different is that instead I create the playtest material. So I really come from a place of playtesting first. And so I play, I really do prefer playtesting online. Like if even if we weren't in the middle of a panini, right? I do kind of prefer playtesting online because it's easier for me to record the sessions. It's easier for me to find other people who are super into indie narrative games uh, compared to my local space, which is more D&D focused. Like, I, I think most people can say that, right? Like most people can say that they live in places that are more D&D or trad focused, right? So it's easier to find your fellow indie lovers <laughs> like online. So nowadays I create my playtest materials first. I create the online materials first. And then I run through, depending on the game, but usually nowadays it's at least, wow, I want to say like at least six to 12 sessions of playtesting. And then from there, that's when I start writing the game. And nowadays I'm kind of lucky that I can afford to like work with an artist. So that's pretty cool. So I usually do that at around the same time, if possible, if it's something that's going to happen. I don't always get to work with an artist. So I think they bring so much into the TTRPG space for sure. Our unsung heroes, definitely. And yeah, so from the playtesting, from the writing, uh, it goes through some more refinement. I usually like to play test it with at least two to three groups before it finally goes up. Uh, and usually I like to share the early stuff with my patrons. And yeah, I think that's currently where I'm at now, which is why it's been a while since I... So my my Itch.io uploads have been like far slower because there's a longer process of playtesting and trying out first before I offer the game. And I think it's also a reflection of just how complex and how how much bigger my games have gotten in comparison. Because my earlier games, I only needed like a session or two to playtest because they were much smaller experiences, right? So yeah, yeah. And usually I spend like, it depends on my health for the day. It depends on how things are going disability wise, but I try to put in anywhere between 
two to 10 hours a day just working on game design stuff, not including the playtesting time. But yeah, yeah, that's basically what my process is like now. I say that is a lot of time, especially considering that you're also playing three to six days a week. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Yeah. So it's really, it's really, I'm very lucky that this is my full-time job. Uh, It's a little easier to manage as someone from the Philippines, but between Itch.io and my Patreon and the connections and commissions that I've built up over the past few years, I'm very lucky that, that I can do this full-time and and it's a lot of fun. So in fact, my biggest problem is I forget to take a day off. (laughs) I forget to take breaks (laughs) because I'm like, well, I'm just playing a game. (laughs) So Right. <laughs> but 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 I'm working on that. So that's another thing I'd like to tell people. Please help take breaks. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> How long did it take you to be able to make this your full-time thing? Oh yeah, gosh. Um I wanna say I really like jumped off the deep end. I don't recommend this for everybody. Like for other people, if you want to like do the game design thing at the same time as as having another job. Like it was, it was easy for me because I was a tower reader. And so my, my time was very flexible, right? So I'd either do tower readings with my clients or Reiki sessions with my clients and then do game design, right? Very flexible. So uh, fairly easy. And yeah, I, but I still pretty much jumped off the deep end uh, mostly because it was just something that I really enjoyed doing. And then it got to a point when my disability really flared up that I couldn't do anything but game design. Like seeing people was difficult. Like trying to stick to a schedule was difficult. So definitely game design just opened that up for me. But yeah, I just want to say like mostly it was just me being really gutsy and really praying that it would work and figuring out like, you know, I might as well just try. If I just try and and see if it works out, and if it doesn't, I can always go back to doing something else and then I can try again next time, right? So like I said, uh, I'm I'm in my late 30s right now and, and I've done so many career twists and shifts, right? So because before being a tower reader, I was a trainer and an English, a second language teacher. And then before that, I was a studio photographer. Like my, my resume is a mess, right? <laughs> like, so, <laughs> I have all these like really disconnected career paths. But yeah, so so I've just learned how to just, you know, I'm just going to try it. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. I'll just try something else. So basically, yeah, because the worst that can happen is that uh, I'll just need people to help me out a little bit. And so as a Filipino, as an Asian, we're very used to just being like, okay, I'll just ask for help from the community <laughs> if I need it, if things really go badly. I, I just thought it would be worth trying. It, it It's something that I enjoy doing so much. And I love game design so much. I just really wanted to... There's nothing quite like it. I just I just love the art and science behind it. Absolutely. And honestly, like having a resume that jumps all over the place, I think makes for just a much more interesting life. Like I cannot understand. I mean, I don't mean this in a bad way. I don't understand <laughs> when people stay in the same job for 10, 15 years. Like that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I mean, maybe the, the job was really awesome. But yeah, I just... I mean, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really do. And I feel like each thing I've learned has helped me, right, with the next thing. So like, for example, with, with being a GM or being a game designer or being a player, I feel like, for example, like my years as a tower reader have really helped me trust my intuition. 
and your intuition and your artistic expression, like those are two very similar muscles, right? They're very close to each other in the brain, I feel. So the more intuitive I became, the more creative I became. And my time as a trainer and a teacher really helped me as a GM and a playtest facilitator at the same time, right? Like, so I just feel like the more stuff you do in life, the more it can uh, like feed into each other and, and teach you all these different skills that you won't have in just one place with one job, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so to jump back to processes, mm-hmm. how do you decide what your mechanic is going to be for your games? Oh, yeah. So, so I feel like, like, so earlier when I talked about Godzilla versus King Kong and stuff and what I watch, right? I think I've just developed this muscle over time and I'm watching something. Like, I'll watch my, my partner loves Riverdale, right? And, and so, like, when he's watching Riverdale, I'll see it unfold and I'll be like, oh, yeah, the player wrote a miss in that one. And so this is what the GM decided to do. (laughs) Or I'll be like, ah, I see that this character has changed their playbook. And hmm, I feel like this is a mechanic. This is a move that does this. And so I start to take apart what I'm seeing on screen, like in movies, in, in TV shows, in anime. And I sort of just like take apart what it could look like mechanically. What are the different ways that it could show up mechanically? Where is this a move or... Is this something that the GM does or is this an integral part of the playbook that's not necessarily a move? Is this is a resource being spent, right? And how much of this is mechanical and how much of this is just what happens naturally in the game that the mechanics in, enforce or guide, right? And so I think a lot of that reverse engineering has, has helped me. And also I try as much as possible to just, like I said, play as many games as I can so I can see different mechanics come into play with different people in different ways. For example, like when I read a game, I absolutely don't have a strong opinion on what the game is like or what the game is until I actually play the game, until I see it in action. Because I feel like there's such a huge difference between what you read on the page versus what happens in the game. For me anyway. So that's definitely um, something. And so I think all of that, like, like all just a fine tuning and that, 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 that muscle like, has just been refined over the years. I just have these big mechanical muscles now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was there anything specific that influenced Arhan's mechanics? Ooh, yeah. So I want to say definitely like one of the things that inspired me was Beetlejuice, the movie. Like I just really loved how creepy, cozy, cute, sweet, scary that movie is. <laughs> And, and yeah, like I, I really thought about how like, it's just a very chill, like what, what the culmination of that movie is without spoiling it anything. I know it's an old movie, but I'm, I'm such a stickler for not spoiling things. If you haven't watched Beetlejuice, please watch it. It's great. And so what I like about the film is that the end goal is really just to be able to like chill and have fun together and, and, and enjoy that found family. And so I think that's really, especially for the second edition, I really wanted to focus on changing the moves and shifting that towards pushing you towards connecting on an intimate, vulnerable level with that. And so redesigning, rewording several of the moves to give that space for that was definitely super important to me. And also I wanted to, when you create a room in our haunt, 
depending on the choices you make is you choose your aesthetics and you choose an unsolvable problem. And so I wanted to give all these different options with how cozy you want to go versus how scary you want to go. And if you want to go somewhere in between and choose one scary option and one cozy option, you can do that, right? I wanted to give players the chance to make our haunt as sweet or as scary as they want it to be. And if they're like me, to have something in, in the middle, right? But yeah, that definitely... That's what inspired me was watching Beetlejuice and other, and other like, oh, and I also rewatched Ghost with all these old movies. Anyway, so I rewatched Ghost with Patrick Swayze in it. And it's like, what am I, what are my favorites? So yeah, like just, just really, I gave myself permission to watch all these sad, sweet ghost films <laughs> and build my mechanics from that, like rebuild Arnhaan from, from that perspective. Okay. That sounds amazing. <laughs> So I get to spy myself it's work, right? As I watch all these movies. Oh yeah, this is work. So. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I think any game that is inspired by Beetlejuice is going to be fantastic. So I am here for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some cute little Easter eggs. Like I in the attic, I put in some things that were directly from the Beetlejuice movie there. So that was and 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 my playtesters picked up on that, which is super fun. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, so tell me about the Kickstarter that's coming up. Yeah, so I'm so excited for the Kickstarter. I'm so grateful because Possum Creek Games is handling everything. I'm very spoiled. I'm very loved. I just have to be here to make the game. And I really want to stress that both Ruby and Jay did so much great work to really help bring the small, cozy, creepy game to life. I'm most excited about the fact that we get to work with a few other people. So we're working with Dominique Dickey. Uh, he's going to be the editor for Ahad, which is very cool. And we also have an artist. Gosh, it's so wild because like when I first put together Ahad, I was just like, ah, this stock photo doesn't really express what I'm trying to go for, but it's close enough and it's free. So I'm going to use it. So the original version of Ahad, like it looks more on the creepy side. Like there's less of that found family cozy aspect because that's just harder to find uh, with free stock photos and stuff. And so when Jay read through the game again and talked to me about it, Jay really has this amazing ability to like read a game and just like completely understand its themes and what it's going for. Like Jay has like, like this vision that, that is amazing. So when Jay read it, Jay was like, you know, I have a feeling that you were trying to go for this found family stuff and this cozy stuff. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So, so Jay gave me like this list of recommended artists, of course, telling me that I could offer other artists if I wanted to. And we got it down to a few. And then we ended up working with Habil Ferdas from Malaysia. And he's been absolutely amazing. Like his art, every time we get new art, I just freak out <laughs> over how good it is because it's this really beautiful watercolor that's just it feels so innocent, so sad. And then there's this slight scary edge to it for some of the pictures. It's so, so good. I really just, like, he's really nailing it. And Ruby and Jay are doing such a good job. Ruby is the art director. And Jay as project manager have just been doing an amazing job working with everybody else and really bring this Kickstarter to life. I'm so excited for for the kickstarter to come out um i think one of my favorite things is is uh there's a tier where you can buy a version of the game that comes with a haunted doll and it's a limited edition 
right? There are only a few haunted dolls that they're going to send out. I'm so excited for that. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just absolutely wild. I would not have thought of that myself. So <laughs> yeah, that is so cool. So I know that technically the Kickstarter is already out by the time that this episode airs. But yeah, I mean, I guess like how much of the work has been done for this revamp before launch happened and then how much is going to be happening afterwards? Oh, yeah. So that's really interesting because Jay really insisted on having everything done before the Kickstarter goes. So right now, currently, while we're recording, I'm still doing the finishing touches on the text. But basically, before we even go to Kickstarter... It'll be edited, it'll be laid out, the art will be complete, right? Because Jay wanted to make sure that everything was ready to go. And so this is a relatively small Kickstarter. And as soon as we get the final numbers, like the books will be sent out. So yeah, like I actually had to do a lot of the work beforehand, right? I know that like Kickstarter is usually about kickstarting. (laughs) Like that's usually the idea. But I think that this is just to... I think, and that's one of the cool things about working on a game that has already been published, right? And that you get to do a second edition for that you get to do a lot of the work ahead of time. But yeah, so basically that's where we are. Uh, so by the time you you listen to this podcast, like our hunt is ready to go. <laughs> like it has been play tested, laid out, written, everything ready to go. <laughs> that is super cool. Okay, so I do want to make sure that I have time to ask a question that I like to ask in every interview. So you can answer this really about whatever you want. So if you want to do it Arhant specifically, if you want to do it for just your whole journey mm-hmm. of making games. But I like to acknowledge that there are challenges in working in this industry. So when you look back over this time, what would you say has been the most challenging part? Yeah, I think the most challenging part, and I really, it, it breaks my heart to say this, right? But I think the most challenging part was me learning again and again that I do not exist in the space in the same way others with more privilege do, right? So the fact that I'm femme perceived, the fact that I am queer, the fact that I am Filipino, it it has like created all of these obstacles again and again. And I realize that people treat me very differently and treat my games very differently than if I weren't those things. And sometimes I, I had to like remind myself that the feedback that I would get that would be hypercritical, I would see other people do like maybe the same thing in their games and they wouldn't get the same amount of feedback. They wouldn't get the same amount of pushback or the same amount of like condescension, <laughs> like telling me how to design my game or redesign it to, to basically have the game appear to be more like what people are used to, right? Which is very cishet, which is very white, which is very male, which is very colonial minded. And yeah, so the biggest challenge has been me telling myself, like figuring out the difference between what uh, what criticism or feedback is valid and actually helpful to my process and the games I want to make and what criticism feedback has just been trying to strip away what makes me unique, what's important to me, what is essential about my voice and my experience and and yeah it's been really difficult like if i can be really candid i recently went through a fairly like a few months ago i went through a fairly traumatic experience where i received a huge amount of feedback towards a game that meant a lot to me and it took me so long to come back from that and regain my confidence 
as a game designer. Like I literally had to spend money on therapy, like in order just to get out on the other side. And it was really heartbreaking. Like there was a time when I was crying every day for hours. Like I was just, I was just too stubborn to give up. I was just too stubborn to give up on game design, but my heart goes out to people like me. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be challenging. I know people are going to say things that they think are objective, that they think are helping you. But what they don't realize they're doing is that they are just putting out your fire and they are just trying to take away your light. And you just have to stay focused on that. You just have to believe that your voice and your experiences mean more than anything else. So yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge. Hmm. For if any of our listeners are feeling that they're in that same rough spot. Do you, I don't know, has, has it ever gotten easier? Like, is there anything in particular you think that helps? Yeah. I think what really helped was me reaching out to people and really talking about it. I think, uh, so the irony is that I like to make emotional games uh, about being vulnerable and putting yourself out there, but it's also very hard for me to do that as a person sometimes. And, and it's very hard to not feel like, like, oh, yeah, I must have failed at some point. If I got that much criticism and that much blowback, then, then it must have been me, right? So I really forced myself. Like, my intuition, my angels were like, go out there and talk to people about it. Talk to your friends and reach out to your friends. And so I really forced myself to talk about it with my friends because the therapy did help, but I understand that therapy is not something that everyone can get. I was barely able, I barely managed to get <laughs> therapy and afford it. So I understand. But Basically, I think the most important thing is to talk to your friends, have them recenter you, have your like it came to a point where I told myself, as long as my friends love the games I make, that's what's the most important thing. As long as we have a good time playing the game I make, as long as I just think about my friends first, that's what matters more. And and that's all I need to do. Right. It got to a point where it was so bad. I was just like, uh, if I'm just one person say my game is cool, then that's all that matters, right? I just need him to say it. And 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 I'll work from there. I'll work from there. So that was enough to get me through like the worst spots. So I think like really just talking it out and talking to people who understand, right? I found so much resilience and solidarity with with other game designers and people in the space who are who are people of color like me, who are femme perceived like me, and who are queer like me and have really just absolutely helped. So I just want to remind people that it can feel really lonely when you're in that situation, but just to force yourself, force yourself to reach out, it'll make the biggest difference. I think that's really good advice. <laughs> let's, let's flip this around. So when you're looking back over your journey, what would you instead say has been the most rewarding part of it? Oh yeah. Gosh, there's so much. I've loved so much of it. I think the most rewarding has been people I don't know, like playing my games and talking about the positive experiences they've had. Like, I, I just love it so much when people say like, it's my birthday, I'm going to celebrate by playing this game. And I love it when people reach out to me and they talk about the positive experiences they had playing my games or if, yeah, it's, it's just been so amazing. It's, it's just, because whenever I write a game, I always think about that person I haven't met yet that is going to play my game. And so I put so much love into the games I make because I really want people to have a good time and really enjoy the games. And so it's just me pouring all this love out to someone I haven't met yet. <laughs> 
sometimes. And so the most rewarding is when that person reaches out and tells me they had a good time. It's just absolutely priceless. I just love it so much. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As we start to wind down though, I know obviously our hunt is the big thing that's happening right now. Go check it out on Kickstarter. Yay. But are there any other upcoming projects or things that you're excited about that you're able to talk about that we haven't really mentioned yet? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. <laughs> like I said, I'm working on several games. So my biggest, chunkiest baby is Apocalypse Keys, which is going to be published through Evil Hat. So that's the game that I've been working on quite a lot. Like it's been two, almost two years in active development. And, and it's, it's a game about playing as monsters who are holding back the apocalypse, working for the division, solving mysteries, facing down harbingers. It's very emotional, intense, explosive, lots of fun. You get to play monsters, very cool. Aside from that, I'm also working on my Brinkwood games, which I really, really love. I got to work with some amazing artists for Brinkwood Refuge, which has really brought the game to life. And Void Walkers will be coming out for Roll, the platform. So Void Walkers is my is Jammy's version of the space opera. But it's going to be a little weird and mystical because, you know, that's just that's just how I roll. So uh, I'm really excited for Void Walkers. And Once More Into the Void uh, is also coming along. That was another amazing, successful Kickstarter we had. Once More Into the Void is about a crew that must come together one last time. You know, they had a they had a sad, you know, heartbreaking past, but they have to face the enemy against the most dire odds of a suicide mission. And so that's that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So so I, I have a lot of games that I'm working on that I'm so excited. Oh, I also have a Fortune of the Dark Social Intrigue game. I, I have a lot of games, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So if you could keep up and, and be excited for all the games I'm working on, I would super appreciate that. That would be super rad. <laughs> well, okay. If people want to find you and find all of your games and learn more, where should they go? Yeah. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. I use a lot of Sailor Moon GIFs and I update people on how things are going with my games. So you can follow me on Twitter at Temporal Hiccup. If you want to keep track and, and see bits and pieces of the games I'm working on and where they are currently, like I, I like to share all of my game drafts and the playtest materials as I as I work on the games. You can support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash games. For the last few months, I've been releasing videos also where I go over my games. I give some like, you know, like that, like a DVD commentary. Do we still do DVDs, right? So like a, a director's commentary. I do like a designer's commentary on my games or I talk about game mechanics. Like last time I did uh, creating a pick list just on the fly just to show people what my process is like. So you can check me out on Patreon. And of course, you can follow me on Itch.io Temporal uh, temporalhiccup.itch.io just to keep track of the games when they do come out. But Twitter and Patreon is the best place to keep up with me. Perfect. I will have those links in the show notes. Jamie, this has been so fun and I wish that I could just keep talking to you for the next like six hours. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's been such a great time hanging out. These are such good questions. Oh, thank you. And thanks for hanging out with me too. Like, it's been awesome. You just finished another episode of Roll, Play, Grow. To check out the show notes from today's episode, you can go to lightheartadventures.com slash RPG. To keep up with every episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice. And if you're enjoying the show, I would absolutely love if you would leave me a review and share this episode with your friends. 
Your review might even get featured on an upcoming episode. To follow me on Twitter, you can either find me at lightheartadv for our business account or at KetraWCR for tweets on gaming, my dog Bowser, and other random shenanigans. You can also find us as Lightheart Adventures on both Instagram and Patreon. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Roll, Play, Grow.